Live from Otaganga, this is Drilled Trains of Thought. Damn, this is, um, I'm going to say different, but it's always different. Yeah, well, I'm all wet. Yeah. Misa like it here, okay. <laughs> well, I, th- I, talk, I the natives, I'm starting to talk. You know when you hang out in a place long enough, start talking like them? You start picking it up? Yeah, Misa's picking it up. And that could be a problem when you come back, when you get back. Yeah, I may not be uh, well-loved. Possibly. Despite all the goofy residents, they have got some nice choral music. Yeah, that's very true. It's a little damp in here. It's but. yeah, a little damp, but there's you know there's a mystic vibe. You feel sort of connected to the core of the planet. Yeah, somehow. yeah. And then you watch out the windows, and you you're kind of just watching the fish. You see one, and then you see another one, and you're like, and then there's always a bigger fish. Yeah, so. it, it seems like it should be a very peaceful place if you know the natives weren't always tripping over themselves. Yeah, but what well, I fit right in. So. <laughs> I can see that. So we're here in Otaganga, yeah. uh, enjoying ourselves. Not it, not too... Uh, it's, a, it's a little better than theory, Ian. In theory, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so um, let's let's just um, before some of the some of the natives are starting to um, sneak over here trying to figure out what we're doing, but let's just go ahead into story school. Tim came up with this uh, idea. It's kind of a... Well, I think it's been kicked around in our uh, topic at list for a while. But so go ahead and introduce it, though, because you know better. <laughs> okay. I guess I've been thinking about it more recently. Yes. So the topic is basically who owns a story, which this should seem very obvious in a, to a certain extent, especially if you're a writer. Uh, obviously, the author owns a the story. They wrote it. And so... Uh, in, in 75% of cases, Disney. <laughs> <laughs> Nowadays, yes, that is a possibility. So, but we'll look at this from a couple different perspectives. There's there's the corporate aspect yes. of it, like which is more and more of a thing in our day and age. Because nowadays, there's just there's so much multimedia versions of stories, and if it goes off at all, it'll go off in every platform. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Um, but then, from the audience's perspective, the fans often feel like they own the story. Like, yeah. they they understand the story better than uh, the writers do originally. Yeah. Because, but, you know, of course, because you've been you've been watching it, that you must know exactly what should happen. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's my cynicism there. <laughs> you, you've seen this happen in a couple cases, yes. right? All right. So, which one do you want to tackle first? Let's start with the... Let's do the corporate last. Okay. And do the... <laughs> okay. Do the back with her. So, start with... The fans owning or the author or and it gets complicated because a lot of times fans sometimes you got you know it's one author and a big book series but at least i'm not as aware of the outrage from people at a book series as much as tvs that are owned by i mean the writer is a writer group you know so it's right. a little more fluid anyways you don't have the kind of this singular vision is often yeah with a book series you usually feel like you have a closer connection to the author himself like you're, you're trusting him to the to this world. Well, I guess, well, here's one one example of an author that you're, you know, singular vision, you're like, oh, I like this, Wheel of Time. Okay. I bring up a lot. It's 14 books, though. Uh-huh. And a lot of people got in, and then by book seven, eight, nine, some people are like, he's lost it, he can't do it. You know, all the four momentum's gone. Uh-huh. Now he just describes what people look like all the time, which he does a lot. I mean, he, everyone <laughs> wears, you know, exactly what they're wearing. And so there is a sense of, at least part of the fan base, I think, had this sense of disillusionment uh-huh. that it promised a lot and then it just got bogged down. 
Well, I do th- I wonder, the sense of disillusionment, I think, happens with a lot of different series and franchises, um, for some good reasons, some bad. In that case, it sort of sounds like it's a case of, uh, and you can correct me if I'm yeah. wrong, but maybe once you, Robert Jordan reached a certain level of success, he let himself kind of indulge in the things that he really liked as opposed to earlier on, you have to like make your story very marketable and maybe hold yeah. back on the things that really interest you, but may not interest everyone else immediately. I, I don't know if it's because the success or not. I don't know enough. I think, yeah, I think it is though. They were the thing that he really enjoyed. And because the world had gotten the early ones are very much, he purposely made very adventuresome. It, you know, as a young man going into the world mm-hmm. by book five, the young man going to the world owns about two or three countries. So the politics comes out much stronger because out, oh, okay. of, out of necessity. And Robert Jordan was very much, compl- I mean, he knew everything in this world. So he always took the, you know, there was no like quick shortcut like you see in a movie. You know, everything went through this stage and this stage and this stage of the politics and stuff. So things would run their course and maybe the long run not have a giant impact, but okay. they had to run their course naturally because he built the world and he wanted it to run... That, that was my impression of it. And I always liked it because I just liked his world. I mean, I could, oh, sure. I finished the last book and I'm like, I could keep reading this. Right. And um, I'm, not, I'm not saying like success went to his head, but yeah. he, it did kind of free him up That's in some true. ways yeah. to do things that he enjoyed. I hear, he I necessary. can't imagine it's, a man, it's possibly true, but apparently he sold it as a trilogy. I can't imagine that's true. <laughs> um, but he just, yeah, I mean, he just cre- kept creating characters and side plots that then he had to go and finish and let... And they would kind of grow into their own little, you know, they'd go three, four books, these side plots and stuff. So, sure. yeah, he just, he liked the world and he just kind of lived in the world. And then my guess is, and I don't know anything about Game of Thrones, the books, but, you know, he's been writing that for a long time, time. just for the next book. And now that they have a TV show, they expect him to crank it out faster all yeah. of a sudden. And he's like, hey, this is not the way I've done it before. And I do think sometimes there's this, uh, as you build that much plot and characters and stuff, it just gets hard to figure out what you're going to do with it all. It's a lot of stuff to move around. Sure. If yeah. you're not if you're not a person with deep plans, like I, Brandon Sanderson has this ten book series he's writing, two books he's done with, and that guy plots stories. I mean, my guess is he knows exactly what's going to happen with all main characters. They could be wrong, but Rob Jordan, from what I understand, was much more of a like, here's where I want to get them to, here's where they are, and I'll meander, I'll find a way to get them there. And so the meandering happens in the middle of those books, and and I liked I you know it's that still sounds very familiar yes <laughs> yes I mean but this I mean I liked his doing I mean I sure. it didn't bother me that not much happened because I just liked reading I liked his style and the characters and what was going on but mm-hmm. people caught into it on the on the quick end right didn't like it once it slowed down okay and I don't think Robert Jordan is alone in terms no. well, um, you mentioned George R. R. Martin I guess. <laughs> we're going with a lot of fantasy people. Well, there's there's a big series. I mean, those are the ones that yeah, the big series. That's the ones where you kind of and any author will have people will be bigger fans of some books than others. Yeah. That's yeah. A, that's a given. But if you're talking about in terms of you're building this expectation, then and that's really the problem. Sometimes people come into it saying, "Oh, this is the sort of book it's going to be," and it doesn't always end up the series doesn't end up that way. Or if you get them very highly invested in the characters, and then the characters do something that you don't want them to, mm, yeah. Um, you know, there was a whole, I, not that I kept a lot up with the Twilight, but, you know, for the last book, everyone's like, is it going to be Edward? Is it going to be Jacob? And sure. all the Jacob lovers are all mad. And you know. Right. Well, yeah, yeah, I've experienced that. In the Naruto, there was, a, there was another sort of pairing, which I felt kind of torn either way about who, who should end up with yeah. who. And, like, I saw one side, but also saw the way the author did it. And it's, it's you know, 
So, you, you let, me, have that. let me bring this up. It, because it seems to me that it's perfectly fine and expected that as a reader invested in the world, you would feel mad about certain things that happen that you don't like. Mm-hmm. Because that's just, you have, you know, you want things to happen and then it doesn't happen. But why or, or where is the line that become where suddenly you're like, the author's wrong? I mean, how did we get to the point where like, oh, I don't like this, I'm mad at the author, to the author shouldn't have done this, I'm going to write my own version where it didn't happen. <laughs> I mean, it just, it's, it's just odd to me that we now take such a, we involve ourselves so much in the story that we're insulted almost if it doesn't work like we want it to, uh-huh. as opposed to just disappointed or, oh, that was a bad ending or... Yeah, I don't know. I, I imagine Laura Fisher would be able to give you more yeah. into the history of fan fiction that did the revision sort of thing. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I do recall when thinking about this whole thing about who knows better in yeah. a way, because I reread Lord of the Rings recently. Yeah. And in the prologue of that, Tolkien says something along the lines of getting letters from some people that thought he should change certain things and then letters from other people saying they like those things. Yeah. Which I can sort of guess which thing, you know, probably the things that people often complain about talking about. Yeah. Whether it's the language or, you know, too many descriptions of the same thing yeah. or, or whatever. Probably some people love that stuff and other people don't. So I think the author, in Tolkien's sense, he obviously had a sense of, look, obviously he's not going to please everyone. Yeah. And... He knows what he enjoys about the whole thing, so he just kind of leaves it there. And I always felt like that's kind of the way you should, you know, trust writers. Yeah, and it seems to me the writer itself is trying, I mean, a good writer is writing honestly. He's writing, here's the book I want to tell, Mm -hmm. and hopefully you like it. Right. As opposed to, I'm going to try to please everyone, which is not a very good way to write. Well, I mean, in a sense, Tolkien starting off Lord of the Rings was trying to please people. I mean, he, he setting out to write a sequel to The Hobbit well, was not originally one of his life goals. Yeah. <laughs> but he wound up incorporating, because it had such a good reaction, it's like, okay, people, people want more, I'll write more. And then he kind of incorporated yeah. more of himself into it. There's a give and take here. Because it seems to me that as much as we think we want authors to give us what we want... I don't think that would make us happy because, first off, you can't get what everyone wants. Yeah. Unless you're going to rule by committee and or mob or whatever. Anytime you try to do that, Which though. Not, it, and plus then it stops being yeah. unique and surprising. I mean, I mean, sometimes you got the authors who are just like, I'm going to do this just because everyone doesn't expect it sort of stuff. Uh-huh. <laughs> Which I'm not, you know, may yeah. or may not be helpful. Depending on your medium. I mean, for medium is this sort of, and that's a tr- hard thing with like TV. Mm-hmm. Is that you're in this medium where you are back and forthing it week to week sure. with your with your audience, and you want to play with them, you want to make a good show that they like because you need ratings and stuff, but you also want to make something that you're happy with. Mm-hmm. I always remember J. Michael Straczynski in his script writing book says he could only ever write what he liked. He couldn't he could, like he, he said I couldn't write a Terminator movie. I'm, I'm glad people can, but unless it interests me, I just can't write the thing. Uh-huh. And I think when you do that. You, People like Battle and Five. There's a rabid fan base who loves Battle and Five, and other people are like, "What is this thing?" And that's the thing. There's so many different entertainment options out there that people seek out what intrigues them yeah. about something. I don't know that I would have ever gotten to Babylon, Babylon Five, except you talked about it yeah. so much, and then I was like, "Okay, I'll see what this thing is." And it's awesome. Yeah, and, <laughs> and it is awesome. It turned out that there's a lot to love about it. But authors, I mean, authors have their worldview. I think sometimes you get disillusioned too when you're like, "Oh, this is going to be this sort of thing," and then. They have a belief that you don't agree with. And yeah. The thing is, I've never been the sort of person who can understand, like, how dare you do such a thing? Because I figure it's, it's their there. character. Yeah, I might sure. think it's horrible or, like, I'm not going to watch anymore or something. Mm-hmm. But, like, I don't hate 
Josh Whedon for killing Wash. Like I'm like, I don't know why he did, and I don't. It seems I like it was a horrible move, yeah. yeah, but I'm like, I don't hold some sort of personal grudge of against him or yeah. Or George Lucas for doing some of the tweaking yeah, that he does. Exactly. I mean, I mean, there's a, a case going into the movie realm. There's a case of people having a very clear idea of what they. Well, here's the thing, though. I think Star Wars is a medium that where people think they know what they want, but they don't necessarily. Yeah. Because there, there's a certain segment of hardcore fanboy that thinks that they really want like a greedy, you know, ultra violent Star Wars movie. <laughs> like in the prequels, where I, I feel like there were some teenagers who felt like that's when what they actually wanted. And, like, I don't think you really do. Um, yeah. Now, I do think... I, I'm kind of learning that there is a bigger spectrum of of good Star Wars movies than... Or good Star Wars in general. Yeah. Like, you've got some... Star Wars can be very political. Star yeah. Wars can be very violent or very horrific, or yeah. you know, and, depending and on what sort and of story. And we're reaching the, the case where stories move beyond a simple one medium. Yeah. And you get multiple authors, multiple... You're, you're almost purposely reinterpreting the world every time you write it. it yeah, and because in a way, Star Wars as a world is huge right now, and that's where you yeah. get all these different types. But in terms of, and this is going to be interesting as they develop new kinds of movies, Yeah, but the classic Star Wars movie I always felt worked really well in this sort of space fantasy, bigger-than-life yeah. sort of stuff. Yeah, and that's, yeah, that's, I think that's why people like it so much. And, and honestly, that's, I think, why people were disillusioned with the prequels, because... The prequels are much more grounded in many ways. In, in, uh, in some ways. In, in, a, in a weird way, they, they were more political while simultaneously being a little more... The stuff that we're always in Star Wars, but no one would admit, like Ewoks and stuff. Uh-huh. You know? Well, Which I always liked, and so I like I like Jar Jar. Well, I always know? felt... I felt feel Lucas tried to do... He tried to have best of both worlds. In one sense, the prequels are sort of his attempt at a Greek tragedy yeah. in a Roman, you know, fall of the Empire yeah. and fall of Anakin Skywalker and yeah. this great fall. But then on the other hand, I also read somewhere that he, like, tried to make the first movie for kids and the second movie for teens and the third movie for adults. Okay. Like, and you can sort of see the, the progression yeah. of seriousness in those. But that's... That's trying to meld two very different, like one a very mass market idea and one very not. <laughs> yeah, and it's interesting. I mean, the thing with people like George Lucas is to a certain extent is that his view of the Star Wars universe is very different than right from from the readers, you yeah, know, or the watchers because they well, grew up. The it's, it's their whole yeah. childhood is all to him. It was something he did, something he played around. He with. played around with. He did. He liked tinkered around with a lot. Yeah, yeah. that to him it was still. He and has a certain it, it distance was still, from it. So, yeah, so. it was still an experiment in many ways. I guess to a degree there, he's sort of like Jim Henson. And yeah. we're, uh, <laughs> your brother said the other day he had a, a drinking wanted, game for us. Yeah. Or he wanted to come up with the old trains of thought bingo. Oh, where yeah. Like you got like all the, the certain things. We're we, hitting we, them we, up pretty fast. We're, here. Pretty, <laughs> we're hitting them all tonight. But um, <laughs> like Jim didn't have a whole lot of, I mean, obviously he had a certain amount of affection for the puppets, but yeah. he didn't like treat them like special or like, you know, when he was done with the puppet, he'd, you know, drop it on the floor and move on. We'd yeah. see Kermit or Ernie or something on the floor and be like, ah, you know. Yeah, exactly. So, some people, they get kind of weirded out by that. But the, the actual creators, they know everything that's going on. So they respect the magic and, you know, Jim Henson certainly respected the magic of the world that he's creating, yeah. but uh, they also have this distance from it that... Some of the fans just don't have. Well, then all authors sometimes, sometimes the fans want to have the same thing over and over again in some ways. Mm, yeah. And and a, a lot of the more creative writers constantly want to try new things. Mm -hmm. And so you're like, 
they try something new, it doesn't work. So, so you either get stuck in one world and one type of thing, or you just say, who cares? And I'm going to keep trying stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, like from what, everything I've heard, like George Lucas, his ideas all over the board, and a lot of them are not no. great. You know, he yeah, and yeah. that's just the sort of guy he is. He just does like to, stuff. Yeah, he likes to throw things against the wall and and see what works. Yeah, and there's nothing I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, it, and that's the thing I think a lot of people forget about movies in general is that how much of a collaborative process it yeah. is. And George Lucas works very well as a world creator, as an executive producer. Mm-hmm. He does tend to need someone to come along and help with some of the actual story bits. And yeah. again, Jim Henson was very much like that. Like I think Labyrinth is a keen example of a collaborative thing. Like, yeah. it's unmistakably a Jim Henson movie. Yeah. But when you hear that Terry Gilliam wrote yeah. the script, you can't not see Terry Gilliam <laughs> All over that thing. Yeah, exactly. Because no movie is made just by one person. It, there's all kinds of influences that go into it. And, and TV's a lot. I mean, a lot of the long-run TV shows will have one or two people who've been there the whole time that kind of shepherd the vision. But, you know, things move around because you got different voices coming in. It's like, oh, let's try this this angle and that angle. Because you have, you know, seasons of stuff. You're like, oh, yeah. Depending on the show, sometimes they're like, let's just keep pushing boundaries. We talk, you know, for the bingo, I'll throw Lost in here. <laughs> um, it wouldn't be complete without it. But to a certain extent, I always appreciate the writers always said that they were always trying to push the boundaries of what you could get away with TV, you know? So they never <laughs> really did the same thing. Well, I mean, yeah, that's Nikki and Paolo were one big experiment yeah, to that ex- extent. Yeah. And it was something the the audience wanted. And then they're like, no, this is horrible. <laughs> and the and the writers figured it out, you yeah. know? And and that's another example where the fans' expectations, which were built up quite substantially for all sorts of reasons, yes. in many ways backfired. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and, and that's again, true. the producers purposely mess with their expectations constantly. <laughs> so I mean I'll be interested in say another 10 years when Lost becomes like classic TV. It'll be interesting to see what new people or even like your sisters who were in and all the hoopla initially and they're just watching it now. It'll be interesting to see how new people come to that and not having all the marketing And not having the the week and then a a week of discussion then a week and then like a whole whole season between crazy finales. Yeah. I did read one guy on some website said that he just watched watched Netflix and he like he didn't know what everyone was complaining. He thought it was a great show and you Uh know You don't get so obsessive over every last book they show and all random the, detail. All, yeah, yeah. I think that makes a huge difference. So anyway, so expectation in, in audience, we're also living in a world where you spend two years preparing for a, from a fan point of view, you spend yes. two years preparing for a two-hour movie. So <laughs> Yeah, guilty as charged here. You know, so, so we, have a, we have possibly a healthy relationship with entertainment at times. <laughs> wait, wait, are you saying it's bad that uh, <laughs> I, I worry and stress over the next Star Wars movie? Because <laughs> I do, you know. <laughs> yeah. No, and, and, I mean, and, the, and I think this is... I mean, and I'm not even the one who's, like, trying to read up on, like, every new bit of exactly. things. Exactly. like, I get a bit and, like, oh, I hope what, they don't could, mess up this. And, and, and I think, and so we got this, this um, you know, movies just come out. Oh, it's a movie. Let's go watch it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, oh, that was really good. As opposed to, what? Black Panther's coming out in two years? Well, I'm <laughs> going to read up on all the comics and make sure they do exactly what they should. Um, yeah, yeah. I don't know, it just seems like maybe we've made, you know, we expect too much out of entertainment sometimes. And maybe I'm completely wrong there. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. We've, we've gotten to a point where everyone can be a critic. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's very interesting in the terms of 
it's good that everyone is thinking and not just taking things. Exactly. Um, but do they have the right? I mean, but do we do we? I guess I'm one of those people. Is like if someone makes something, they've already done a great. You know, it's the yeah. end of Ratatouille. You know, they've already done way more than the critics. It, not that it's wrong. You know, we critique things all the time on here. You oh, know, yeah. and I don't think there's anything wrong with intelligent. Like this didn't work, or yeah, man's hands fade is no good. Yeah, uh, that's for the bingo too. <laughs> In the C3K. Yep. Okay. Yeah, no, I I agree. Any any movie that makes it to screen is sort of a miracle in itself yeah. because it's a hard process. And we've talked a bit about this sort of thing on here before, yeah. where you know it's it's good to trust the writers. Go into a movie, be willing to suspend your and be willing to say, look, this didn't work for me. You know, we, sure, like we like Christopher Nolan, and you know the the end of Interstellar was like, ah. yeah, maybe, yeah, yeah, maybe yes, maybe yes, maybe no, but. He tried to make Interstellar. <laughs> <Yeah>. I mean, <laughs> no, that's a huge. That's a huge thing. I mean, he didn't play safe and like do anything normal. Right. Okay. Sorry, but let's I'm get way away off track. From, yes. No, 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 no. You're good. But let's get away from the audience stuff for a while because I do feel like we we touched on that before. Yeah. Let's do so corporation. Yeah. Let's do let's talk about corporate, which this is actually very re, you know very relevant. Um, very very new in many ways. Well, mm, no, yes, you're right. Yes and no. I guess yeah. I guess movie history. They've yeah yeah. Which I want to touch on in a minute. But, like, in terms of recent development, like, the Fantastic Four movie had... There were all kinds of stories in there about, like, the director saying that a studio messed this up and people saying, no, the script was really pretty, you know, bland in the first place. And there are a lot of things... There's a lot of hoopla going on around that movie about why it turned out so poorly with critics. And I haven't... You know, you've seen the movie. Yeah, we'll talk about it later. Yeah, and we'll talk about that later, but... And, you know, and who knows, you know, hearing all this stuff from the outside, who knows, but there is, and also Marvel movies have, I don't know if you've heard some of this, this scuttlebutt, but there's a lot more talk nowadays about not very many directors wind up directing a third Marvel movie of the MCU. Like, cause it's just so hard. The, the the company is so. Yeah. The, the main executive producer, Kevin, I'm not sure how you say his last name. I've only seen it in articles, but Fage, F-E-I-G-E. Yeah. Um. But he has a very clear vision of what he's doing for it. And I think for some directors, like even Joss Whedon, some of the press stories he was in toward the end of Avengers, he was just kind of, sounded like he was kind of battled, you know, downtrodden, yeah. kind of tired of dealing with a lot of this, this stuff. Which I think is interesting because I think a lot of the way the Marvel Cinematic Universe has been done lately is very similar to TV work. Yeah. Like they have sort of this big picture plan for yeah. it. And I think it's difficult for some directors who have had a greater sense of control over this thing to work within that, point. that paradigm. Because you might just roll lost in again. I mean, they had like five writers that stayed the whole time. People are in and out all the time. And I don't know whether it's they disagreed or they got busy or whatever. Different projects but, you or know, whatever. But yeah. you had the two people. I remember I read this little thing up on um, at this episode guide for X-Files season three. And they were, I were, talk, they were talking about the writers and saying that they all pitched it and do their stuff. But Chris Carter always knew perfectly how Mulder and Scully should sound. Ah, like okay. what sort of, and, and so they always had to run all this stuff by him because he had a very distinct thumb on how they worked. Well, and the later Babylon 5 went on, the more J. Michael Straczynski Like, did, I gotta do this thing. I gotta do all of it. He knew so and, much and, about it. And in many ways, things that happen like that bear very much the, the imprint of their creator mm-hmm. for good and ill. The strength of the writer or the thinker comes through and then also their weakness because every every creator has weaknesses. their little yeah there are things that they they their pet projects that everyone's like i don't even care why you do that you know <laughs> sure well and it, the thing with the marvel studios which 
I find really interesting is that isn't not only is it sort of like TV, but it also is sort of a throwback to the old studio system. Because back before the 60s, the director did not have nearly as much control over the final product of the picture as we tend to think of directors nowadays yeah. with movies having. It used to be the head of a studio was usually the one making most of the big decisions. Yeah. If you go back and read, like, say, about Gone with the Wind, I'm forgetting who the head of MGM was at the time. I think it was Selznick. It's been a while since I had my film history yeah. class. But that's largely more his pet project than it was any okay. whoever the director was attached to I have to heard it. that, that, you know, for good and ill, sometimes they'd push things, you know, they'd have a, multiple writers and all this stuff would always run through. Yeah, and it wasn't really until there were some... Film critics and some of the French film critics really started developing what they called the auteur theory. And I think going back to people like Hitchcock, who was one of the few early directors that became known as a director, yeah. he kind of had his own brand. Yeah. Through people like that, they they started developing the idea of the director being sort of the the main artist of a, of a movie, if yeah. you will. Even though, like I said, a lot of times you do have all these other creative influences. Although, you know, as Brian would talk about in Cinema Selections, a lot of times these directors did have their favorite teams yeah. to work with. People like, who agreed, with, you know, who they trusted and they liked their vision and stuff like they that. They worked together, they gelled. Yeah. And so in that sense, say a John Ford movie, he worked with a lot of the same people, so then it would look like a John Ford movie. Yeah. So, I mean, there's something to, whether it's a director, whether it's a producer, whoever, it may be one person that's kind of helming it, but there's a lot of different voices in yeah. there. Um, and so that's a sense where you may think a movie belongs to one person, but it, it kind of belongs to a lot of these people. And, and interesting, you have this whole continuum, is, especially with the internet and with movies and the law forms, you know, there's a lot of very collaborative art forms out there now. Oh, yeah. Which, on one hand, is neat because you get lots of voices. Children Wells has lots of different... We try to play this balance of here's our big ideas that we, you know, we, we really our vision to. needs to have, but mm -hmm. we want you to say it in your own voice. Sure. Which is, you know, has downsides and upsides. Yeah. As opposed to being, you know, I like writing for things like that because I feel like it challenged me to be outside my normal, what I would write just by myself, which mm -hmm. has its own weaknesses. If I'm forced to write someone else's thing, I'm like, oh, I'll do stuff I would never even conceived of doing. Sure. And doing different types. Because you've written, the books you've written for Children of the Wall so far have been quite different yeah. from each other. And I like, yeah, and, that's, and I would never, if say if I write in Children of the Wall by myself, it wouldn't have that variety. Sure, yeah. So it's interesting, you know, depending on who owns it, if you say the people own it or a larger group owns it, it might have more variety, but then it might not have the same continuity. Mm-hmm. And it enables you, the collaborate, the collaboration also enables you to uh, get more accomplished in a sense. You know, yeah. like we were talking about Jordan and yeah. George R.R. Martin, apparently, you know, taking a long time. These TV shows, since they don't have a whole lot of time to develop, they, you know, they rely on their staff yeah. to, you know, more people gets more done. So that's that's an interesting aspect of it, too. Yeah. Touched a lot of stuff. I'm not sure we wrap this whole. Uh, we we touch a lot of stuff, and I, as usual, I, I think who owns a story. Well, there's a lot of possible answers. Yeah. I think it's worth. I think it's worth as a fan realize that someone, you're not the only one who thinks they own the story. Yeah, I mean this is true. I mean obviously you have the fans are necessary in many ways for many of these art forms to be created. Yeah, like uh, Johnny Depp actually said recently at a event that he doesn't much like the term fans because he thinks that makes an, an actor appear elevated as above everyone else. Where he, he said he preferred the term employees. Yeah, which is a fair point. You know, if you don't have an audience, then you don't have a career to go. You know, as he said, 
wear funny clothes and act like an idiot. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so on one hand, you know, on one fa- hand, fan, audience- fan needs the audience. On the other hand, we get great art because we let people have their vision. Yeah. You know, because crowdsourcing stories completely, I don't think would, you know, if we took polls about what should we do in this next episode. Yeah. It'd become a pretty formulaic. Yeah. I mean. <laughs> Not that some shoulders aren't already, but. There's been enough successful Transformers movies to know that we can't always trust the masses to know what's good art. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's, a, it's an interesting... Uh, conundrum. Conundrum, because it's, it's nice that the fans are all very involved and can have feedback, and, and writers can learn from that, but then writers need to say, but, like in your Tolkien illustration, yeah. is that really what I want it to be? Yeah. Know when the customer is right and know when the customer is wrong. <laughs> the customer is sometimes wrong. Yeah, it is. I mean, you can't say that to them. Yeah, you can't tell them that. <laughs> sometimes they are. <laughs> All right. I guess that's it. So we'll go to our first soundtrack. I think we're starting with yours this time, Tim. Yes, yes. Which we didn't even get to uh, video games in this whole conversation. That's true. Probably just because I don't have as much uh, connection to the video games now. Yeah, and I know some games are more by committee. There, there are certain games like I think Metal Gear Solid, Kingdom Hearts that the director is very well identified as having a big impact. Well, I think I think the Final Fantasy games for a while there. I don't know if now, but for a while there, they're one or two. Main people. I, I think so. Or maybe that was just the art. Maybe I'm thinking the art guy. The the art guy. Well, the art guy that did a lot of like the later Final Fantasies does the main stuff for Kingdom Hearts. Okay. Um, that might be one thing. But yeah, sometimes you get those people or you get companies that you feel like they have vision. You know, I feel like. Sure. Um, I can't think of any companies right now. The whole Bioshock <laughs> Nintendo people. probably. Well, some of the more the smaller companies make very well-known oh, games. I see what you mean. Yes, like oh, we trust these guys. Or unfortunately, none of these names are popping to her. <laughs> the that, actual creators Seta or, or something like that. I don't know. Possibly. I see. That's how well I know my video games. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, soundtrack. Yes, we're time for soundtrack. Um. Yes. So the other day, a friend of mine showed me um on this YouTube channel called Game Theories, which. Goes in some of the the theories they they explore on that show are just are meant to be ridiculous and out there and you know conspiracy theory type yeah. stuff. But sometimes they also do some very actual insightful things from uh, what my friend was telling me. And this one was about Super Smash Brothers and the creator of that, whose name I don't know off the top of my head. I meant to look it up and never did. But anyway, just sort of exploring how some people think that he kind of wrote himself into the game as the uh, mysterious hand that's all the characters battle at the end of the (laughs) co-op mode. It's actually a very interesting theory about how, you know, that develops over the course of the games. So in honor of that, I decided to go with something from Super Smash Brothers Melee. This is actually a pretty recent song on OC Remix. Only about three weeks ago it came out as of this recording. It is the second in a row I've done from DJ JD, which is pretty cool. His yeah. his real name is Jacob Diaz, so okay. that's that's what DJ JD. Yeah, that's kind of clever. And the name of the song is "Bowl in a China Shop." So enjoy. Enjoy.
Hello. So, hopefully you enjoyed the bull in the china shop. Yeah. Um, I mean, normally that's not something you enjoy if you own a china <laughs> shop. But Yeah, if you own it, yeah, that'd be sad. It'd be sad. The, it's a remix from the uh, Break the Targets theme, so that's where the name comes from. Okay, that makes sense. <laughs> but uh, we'll go ahead and with our take on Tales. This is our uh, yearly annual summer movie review edition. Yay! Yay! It's a little early to come back to our take on Tales again, but this is a tradition. Yeah. We, tradition! Tradition. I, tradition. <laughs> um, so I guess we'll start with Avengers 2, which is kind of the kickoff of the summer movie season. Age of Ultron, which, yes. man, it feels like a long time ago. It feels already. like a very long time ago. <laughs> summer was short this year. Yeah. So yeah, It was sad. But let's see. Age of Ultron. This was a packed movie. Yes. And I think that was my main complaint against it. There was not enough breathing room. Like every time you would breathe, they're like, oh, thank goodness. And, yeah. and it was a good movie. There was a lot of neat stuff. It just, it felt like there were just too many things they're trying to get done. Mm-hmm. Which is ironic because I think at some point Josh Whedon had said that he had wanted to make a smaller movie and he admitted in interviews that it's like, yeah, I totally failed at that. <laughs> <laughs> and then, let's talk about our who owns it. I wonder if that's just, he decided to squeeze it all in or there were requirements since it's the whole kickoff. Phase three, I think there so. was a lot that he actually wanted to, to okay. accomplish in it. I mean, honestly, it felt to me like this movie needed an extended edition. Yeah. Because it felt like there was a lot more that could have, like, things that could have been brought, like, especially, like, say, Thor in the cave. Like, yeah, that was, yeah. That, that didn't really lead to somewhere, but I guess it... That's probably set up for Ragnarok. Uh, probably, but I still felt like there was, that was one area I felt like there was something more there. Yeah. Now, I will say, I did wind up seeing this movie twice. Okay. And it, it didn't feel quite as packed... Second time. Second time. Like, okay. Knowing um, a little more familiarity with it, you, I was able to, you know, follow it. It yeah. didn't feel quite as overwhelming. I didn't. I mean, and there was a lot. There's a lot good. Good about it. I mean, yeah. No, I mean, if anything, it was it was uh, an embarrassment of riches, which yeah. is another thing I think you said. Which you really. I mean, there's no. I can't think of any moment that I disliked. Yeah. It's just sometimes it's just like it moves so fast. Sometimes it's hard to keep up and keep track. You know, it's like some scenes are just like. The fight scene, then a couple things you say real quick to make sure the plot makes sense, and then something yeah. else you're like, what, 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 huh? Um, <laughs> well, and then the other thing this movie had going against it was that it was the second time. Like, yeah. the first Avengers movie, you had that, like, wow, this has never and been done before. they actually balance everything. And it's hard, I mean, and he did an amazing job in the first Avengers movie, balancing the characters and everything. Sure. And there was almost even more characters balanced, and... Mm-hmm. It just got really tricky. I will now, say, I was I was glad to see more Hawkeye in this one. Okay, I have to say that was one of my my one of my favorite things was the whole Hawkeye home yeah. thing. That was so nice, and it was especially in the chaos of the movie. It was such a nice break. It was a, it was a great break. It it was fun to see. It really threw my sisters for a loop because it didn't you know him having a family and very subtle. It was not what you would have expected from. And him. that was what was so great about it. And it yeah. just there was a lot of neat yeah. And there's a lot of other neat and you parts like, and, and you gotta love how like all the other Avengers are sort of in all of it. I'm like, yeah. you have a normal life? You're like a functional human being? And, What's and, going on? And, and it, you know, I read somewhere, this is this is probably more interpretive than anything, saying it's really neat for a superhero movie to say, and this sort of stable family thing is what we want. You know, yeah. like, you know, uh-huh. kind of yeah. the, everyone else in the movie is looking for someone. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it's, you know, Hulk and Black Widow or Ultron as the son who feel like... He, or Tony just kind of looking for a sense of security. Yeah, I mean, everyone else is looking, yeah. and it's the stable. And it worked really well on multiple levels as a stable center of the movie. Yeah. 
I, I, I would agree. So, yeah, uh, definitely a lot of fun stuff. I, I do hope to see, like, an extended DVD the, yeah. version someday. Didn't I hear it was, like, three, three and a half hours first cut? Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Which, yeah, talk if you want to talk about corporate uh, <laughs> problems, I've always been bugged when they try to keep a movie to a certain length. But I know that's not just – that's something that's they fought since the dawn of the movie age, yeah. you know. Theaters always like having more so they can squeeze, or you know, smaller movies so they can squeeze more in. It is odd because the Avengers would run forever. Oh, yeah. I mean, if it was long. I mean, unless it very well could be that. They said, look, it's not going to work at this length. You know, maybe some of the cuts were yeah, possibly. helpful. You know, like like some of the some of the Lord of the Ring cuts were probably like, look, we don't need 10 hours of this. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I do think some of the extended editions work better than others. Yeah. Um, I, do I mean, think, I don't know. I have not. I, I'm saying that for, without having watched both version Lord of the Ring ones for a while, so I don't yeah, know. Yeah. Anywho, moving on. Okay, so for then another Marvel. Yes. Um, Ant Man. Ant Man, which is a movie that should not have worked. <laughs> <laughs> I like to say that. I mean, it should. It was going to work, but I just enjoy how Marvel could take characters like that and make a really entertaining movie out of it. Yes. I mean, nothing like earth shattering, but. I enjoyed it. I tell people to go see it, you know. We, and also goes well with our theme tonight. Again, this is one that, you know, I don't know if you know, follow the history of the anime. I know it went all through lots of changes. Yeah. Well, the direct, the main director on it, Edgar Wright, um, who directed Shaun of the Dead and Hot okay. Fuzz and is known for these very quirky kinds of movies, uh, Scott Pilgrim versus okay. the World. Okay. He was named, he was like the guy on it for a long time. Like, I think they were trying to do this movie like not long after like the first Iron Man. Yeah. They were trying to figure it out. And he wound up leaving the project like only about a year or so before, not too long before they actually had to start filming. Again, because of script changes and, you know, different things. But there are things of his that stayed in it. And I guess one of those is the idea that this was a heist movie. Yeah. Which was a great choice. Yeah, because I think for, for the for the comic movies to continue to go, because we're getting inundated. Yeah. You have to have some You're variety. gonna have to try some mm-hmm. try some different genres. Why not? I mean sure. we don't need basic origin stories over and over again no, anymore. People no, are no. I mean, in the context of society, we can read that in real quick now. Yeah. You know? Yeah, pretty it's, much. Yeah. Yeah, it's like the more a certain cinematic element gets in, the more audiences understand it, know how to read it, and move on. And you know, the nice thing about this movie is I mean, it was a heist movie. It was not an origin movie in the norm sense. Like, I just got my powers. Like, there was already an Ant Man. It's, oh, yeah. it's a whole yeah. passing of yeah, that things. was unique. Yeah, and you got this whole, you know, Evangeline Lilly's character could have been the hero. Yeah, that's true. And I know some people complain that she should have been, but that's, <laughs> we're not going into politics here. But but it was it was a very enjoyable. And I wonder, oh, yeah. you know, talking about the um, you know, the corporate stuff. I do wonder. Marvel has a, all their movies walk this sort of atmospheric line of. You know, they have certain things they kind of all do. They, they play. They they have this line of like we're serious, but we're also kind of we know yeah. we're a comic book movie thing. Yeah, they, they were, this one was very had a lot of the quirky humor in it, which I had heard about from a friend, and then I half expected more. But I think if you had done more, then you would have been getting a little bit too close in the spoof territory. Yeah, random thought on um, the Russian hacker. You remember the Russian hacker that worked? He was in there trying to do the, all the computer okay, stuff. Okay, yeah, I forgot he was Russian, but yes. No, okay. um, but anyways. He is the best friend of Brianna's cousin. Really? Yeah. No, Brianna's couson makes movies. Okay. Uh, and one of one of the independent movies he made was called Animals, and it was that actor was the main character in that movie, and oh. Brianna's met met him before. Crazy. Yeah. So okay, walk me through real quick. So your brother's fiance's 
cousin's best friend. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So see, five degrees of Kevin Bacon. There you go. <laughs> That's awesome. But anyways, like I say, it was more enjoyable than it should have had a right to be being called Ant Man. <laughs> yes. And Marvel, there's kind of a system they have to making these things work, but it works. I mean, and yeah. so some people complain like, oh, it's formulaic, but yeah, was, if, yeah. if, if your if your goal is to make just a fun. Again, maybe that's not your goal, but fun. You know, let's bring Ant Man to the screen and make it work. And Mm -hmm. yeah, I was gonna have you touch on on the on the formula because I've noticed sometime during our story school, you 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 touched on this the idea that once a thing is once people have the thing, you know, after it's been built up, they've come to expect certain things. Marvel studio movies are not the underdog anymore. No, they're sort of expected, and so there comes the same sort of backlash against it. Yeah, have have you noticed this? Where like people sort of seem a little like they like the Marvel movies, but at the same time they're a little discontent for, but they're not sure why. Yeah, they, because maybe I don't know. Again, I'm not. I don't keep track of this, but it almost like like they're playing it safe in some ways, kind yeah, of. Possibly. I, but I'm not I, sure. I'm, I don't. I can't put a finger. I'm on not it. sure that. I mean, because I do say you know, and that's what I liked about Ant-Man is they they change things up. You know, like hey, we're gonna have a we're gonna make it a heist movie. We're gonna mm-hmm. you know play a different flavor. Yeah, you know, and be. I think you're gonna have to do. I think Marvel being a big hit now, they know. Look, if we're gonna do some of these oddball stuff, we're gonna have to play inside this sort of this sort of uh, range of styles that we can do well. can do yeah. well. Mm-hmm. I think now that they get some of the weirder stuff, the Guardians of the Galaxy stuff, they're like, look, we'll push. We'll see how far our range can <laughs> yeah. go. You know, but it's still it's still not earth shattering cinema by any means at this sure. point. Well, and, and I don't think you're gonna see any Marvel movie that's trying to emulate. Say the Zack Snyder movies, yeah, that that sort of style. What Warner Brothers and DC are going to be, are going to be trying to do. I mean, yeah. and I will say, I'm actually excited for Batman versus Superman. I know there are a lot of people who aren't, but I think I think it's a very in, like the trailer got me really. The excited new trailer, for it. I'm like, if if they can do what this trailer's promising, it's a good idea. Yeah, there there's a lot of good potential in there because I, I don't feel like it's going to be like hero bash. Well, okay, here here's part of it for me having sort of feeling like Batman is taking on this, like, ridiculous... Like, he, he's the comic book Chuck Norris now. Yeah. Except that people, you know, ch- people take, you know, Chuck Norris jokes. People know, okay, this is just a funny thing, yeah. you know. But you're not, like, devaluing every other action hero. Or in the DC world, Batman is, like... Certain people have elevated him to such an extent that he's, like, devaluing every other character. Okay, yeah. And I get kind of excited for this movie where I'm pretty sure Batman is going to be proven wrong. Like, you know, because they're setting him off to basically, you know, take down Superman. Yeah. And and you know, you know going into this that because they're setting up a Justice League movie. Yeah. So eventually Batman's, <laughs> this is a movie that we kind of know where it's going to go before yeah. it comes. And I'm actually excited yeah. about that because, you know, you know they're going to team up because Batman and Superman should team up. Yeah. And Maybe they need each other. Yeah, they, <laughs> they do. They balance out each other very well. So I don't know. I personally, I'm just enjoy- looking forward to seeing Batman taking and, down a few pegs. And, and we should we should move on here, but real quick, I think the thing with Marvel movies is that they're all very enjoyable popcorn movies. Yes, yes. But maybe that's the discontent is that they're just enjoyable popcorn movies. I saw someone on Twitter say today that uh, he he kind of felt like he only got Raiders of a Lost Ark once as a kid, whereas his kids get. A Raiders from MCU from yeah. Marvel every nine months. Exactly. So it's and there's nothing wrong with the popcorn. You know, yeah, not everything yeah. needs to be like Interstellar or or you know so, or Inception or something that's pushing the boundaries of mind bending. Yeah. No, I I think people who complain about too many superhero movies kind of need to realize. Look, 
there are all kinds of other great movies that are coming out. It's, it's not like cinema is only this. Like, yeah. you know, look at the Oscars. You're gonna, you have a wide plethora of yeah. other movies available yeah. to you. I mean, no one's talking about them, but. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's the thing. Maybe it's just jealousy. Yeah. Anyway. All right. So then the last of the superhero movies that I saw was Fantastic Four. Which I did not see this. So, oh, I, there's a sigh. Now, I will say, <laughs> all my all my comments apparently are from, more from a comic book lover. My dad watched it, and he's like, oh, it was enjoyable. He didn't he didn't have anything. I mean, he didn't think it was a great movie, but he thought he was, in, he was entertained the whole time. He thought he went into it thinking it was going to be horrible, and it was fun. Okay, okay. It is just kind of like, it's kind of there. Here, I think I'm more mad at it because it misses so many opportunities. Uh-huh. Okay, first off, it's the third Fantastic Four movie. None of them have been fabulous. The None of them one, have knocked them out of the park. No. There have I, been good elements of... The first one was yeah. enjoyable. You know. I, I think I think there's a lot of enjoyable stuff about the the, the two before yeah. this. Yeah, no, I, mean, I agree. I, w- I would say the Rise of the Silver Surfer should have... Galactus deserved a more epic movie than that was. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I, I, I enjoyed the actors who played the characters I did a lot. too. I did yeah. too. And I, the thing that bothered me about this movie from an opportunity point of view is one... The whole thing's an origin story. It's uh-huh. like, I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but my guess is that after, like, Spider-Man and Batman, Fantastic Four is probably one of those f- people like, yeah, we don't need to explain who these people are. Maybe I'm wrong. But to I me, they're, they're, they're pretty well-known people. And honestly, it's like an hour and a half to, I don't know how long, less than two hours movie. It takes half the movie till they're even transformed. And they're not even teamed till the last ten minutes. I mean... <sighs> Look, if it was the first movie or you were doing it 10 years ago, okay. You're in the land of, like, superhero movies every two months. Don't You don't need to spend that much time. Yeah. The first act, the first 10 minutes should have been them transforming, jump a couple of years, and do something cool. Yeah. Um. So that was my, again, that was one of my big things. Because I like the Fantastic Four. I've read, like, the first 10 years of the comics and stuff like that. All well, of not, them? Maybe not 10 years, but I read, like, a sure. large chunk of their early ones. Yeah. And they're, like, Marvel's big... They're like what started Marvel and can't get them right. Just sad because they're all about like cosmic stuff and and space and you know they're very fantastical and they're even what they go to and mm-hmm. and most of this takes place in labs. I mean, and that's it's just the point where they're building lab equipment most of the time. You're like, and the plant they go to is relatively. I mean, it's kind of unique looking, but it's nothing. I mean, the tech that shrinks Ant Man's cooler than half of what happened in this. <laughs> I kind of saw warning signs for this one a while back just because I think the director said something about wanting to make it a more grounded movie and I was like I don't know that's the approach you want for Fantastic Four like I mean you know I think so, some superheroes will play role like Daredevil's very grounded yeah and, and I and you know I, f- I feel like there's even a place for even though again some people don't like Man of Steel or this, yeah. this, the news next either thing I think it's interesting that they're, they're doing a very dark version of that but I think Fantastic Four just plays better. I mean, you've got a guy that's stretchy. stretchy. Yeah, like, how do you, why get uber serious with that? Well, and here's the other thing. If you want to play it more grounded, I can, you know, be the whole stick is that they're, they're a family and they're fantastic and they, you know, they, but they're family. So they have issues with each other and, you know, their marital issues and there's family, you know, there's infighting stuff. Then start them already as a family and then have domestic squabbling while they're trying to fight something. Sure. I mean... Yeah. Or or Fantastic Four in the original comics, they're the first comics that it's like issue six or something. Like people are selling 
action figures of them, and they get like royalties <laughs> from it. I mean, uh-huh. Stan Lee shows up at the tower and like talks to him inside the comic. I mean, <laughs> you could do like everyday stuff in it. Like, I have no problem with their changes in the sense that, like, instead of going to space, go to alternate dimension because it's all dimensional stuff, which is sure. very Fantastic Four. The other thing that bothered me. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to give you a theory and, and see what you think. Yeah. It seems to me Fantastic Four has the potential to be the Doctor Who of Marvel comics. Exactly. I mean, okay, yeah. they're they're in the negative zone and they're shrinking things and they're fighting aliens from scroll. I mean, if any of the comics deserves to be over the top, I mean, as far as like where you're going and ungrounded, it seems to me... Okay, I haven't read recent Fantastic Four, so sure. maybe they've gotten... But, re, I mean... Re, Mole, they, Mole they, Man the, just strikes me as a completely ridiculous character. They're the fir- I think they're the first people who met the Watcher. Okay. I mean, Reed Richards, uh, I know Nathan said, like, defended Galactus at his trial. I mean, you gotta... One of their bad guys is Galactus. I mean... <laughs> How are you going to ground people who's like main villains Galactus? Uh-huh. So I get I get the idea, but it, it's different than grounding Batman or someone who yeah has like who's ha- has uh, issues that are philosophical. There's not any philosophical and, yeah. issues. Real. I mean, they try to make this whole like the things being used by the army and stuff, but it just comes off as okay. I mean, it always seemed like whenever they try to go that route, they were trying to make a Hulk duplicate. And and you know what? And if if there was nothing, you knew nothing about the Fantastic Four, it would be like, oh, this is a fun little cosmic movie. The other thing is, it's like a YA movie. Like, all the main characters are young adults. <laughs> and yeah. and, and they're, they have someone else over them in the in the lab, and they're, you know, he's like the father figure for them and stuff. Which is just weird when, in the comic, they've always been a family. Mm-hmm. I mean, within a couple years, like two or three years of the comics... You know, Reed Richards and Susan get married, and they ha- they have two kids. I mean, to have them all run wrong as young adults, even Doctor Doom, mm-hmm. it was just odd choices for for that particular thing. I kind of wonder. This movie feels like it has a lot of corporate mistakes around it, and I sort of wonder if the uh, intention was to move away from the perceived campiness of the previous Fantastic Four movies, and in so doing, they kind of and I, you know I like it. You know, okay, you don't want to be campy, but it seems like the stretchiness and stuff. And the, and the look of things, very realistic and worked really well. I mean, a realistic sense of the fire and the and the way you stretch and stuff. But it's almost too little too late. You wanted more, I don't know. I mean, again, it's probably a case of partly expectation, partly just what you're trying to do and the, what you've been given are not the same thing. Okay. Like, we have, like, 10, 15 minutes of Reed being a kid, learning to be, like, making crazy invention and stuff. It's like... Okay, I mean, but, <laughs> but this, these are not new people. It's like spending sure. 15, 20 minutes at the beginning of the Spider-Man movie, like showing that Peter Parker's a dork. <laughs> and then the spider hits about 45 minutes in. I mean, could you imagine a Spider-Man movie? You get to bed like long. 45 minutes in? Yeah, no. that's bizarre. All right, do you Sorry, feel better? Enough of that, yeah. <laughs> and it was, again, it wasn't a bad, you know, I'm like, this is horrible. It's just like, ah, oh, that's a shame. Well, moving to a movie that uh, you would want to see kids tinkering and building technology yeah. in, Tomorrowland. Tomorrowland, which is a fun, we mentioned a lot. Yeah, earlier. we talked about it a lot, so we won't go into a lot of detail with it this time. But, but it's just, that's a movie that's just fun. That's the sort of atmosphere Fantastic Four should have had. Yeah, okay. Or the feeling that anything is Anything's possible. Anything's possible mm-hmm. and crazy spaceships. And, and you're excited to explore as opposed and, to like, oh, look what we've become. And, and the fact that, you know, it's a little, some people say tomorrow, a little naive or campy or whatever, but that was kind of the point. Yeah. Uh, to me. I mean, sure, sure. 
and lots of great scenes in it. Just l- little moment like the him exploring the you know going down. It's a small world, world and yeah. then like trying to figure out the jetpack and well, again, like I think I mentioned in the previous podcast, the set pieces that Brad Bird does are oh, great. Yeah. I guess another great one the. It's almost a simulated long take of of her when she goes there. I guess oh, the, into the commercial, into the commercial. Oh, that is that is that is great stuff. That's a great yeah, because like every everywhere she looks, there's something new and crazy going on. Like I love the the floating pools where yeah. one person's like jumping Dive from one pool and, yeah. to another. That was awesome. I mean, there's just a lot of imagination in that, which is if you had made Tomorrowland the movie without that much imagination, it would have been kind of a shame. Yeah. And I'd rather I'd rather have a movie have too much imagination and maybe come off being too naive and be called Tomorrowland than not. Sure. I'd rather you err on that side, I guess. Mm-hmm. Because, like we said in the corporate thing, you got to just try stuff. And it's better to, if you're going to do something, do it all the way. Yes. And see if you can, see if you can work it. I agree. So, all right, so, so Jurassic World, Tim. I did not see this. My, I think my entire rest of my family saw it and really enjoyed it. I wound up going to see this um, just because I fam- have family that yeah. wanted to see it. And for me, this one was just okay. Yeah, like it's just okay. But they're like bazillions of dollars. I know. Yeah, it's it's crazy. I don't. People had a hunger for this one for some reason. Again, not being the big monsters or the big dinosaurs guy, I don't quite get that. I mean, there's nothing wrong with this movie. Yeah. Like I felt like you know it's fine. I sort of felt like going into it, I knew what was going to happen. Like there's there's certain characters that like they're going to get eaten. <laughs> you, you just kind of know. Spared um, no expense. Basically, I mean, the part I liked the most, the climax was cool. The climax was was easily the best part of the movie. Now, I do you think, in some ways, because it's been a whole almost a generation, in some ways, since the original Jurassic Park, is like a lot of people taking their kids be like, "This is Jurassic Park." I think there is some of that because actually, my sister Danielle had only seen she saw Jurassic Park for the first time a few months because ago. That was a that was a seminal movie when it came out yeah. in many ways. And, and she was uber excited for this. Like, a, this might have been the movie she was most excited for this summer. And I was like, okay. And if, if Phil would have been older, he probably would have been like that. Yeah. Now, for her, she's funny because she doesn't like certain kinds of suspense. Yeah. Doctor Who stuff gets under her skin. Yeah. But for her, dinosaurs just don't. Okay. So for her, it's like a suspense thing that she doesn't have to I got, worry about nightmares Have for. I told this story about uh, Zach on Jurassic Park when we watched it? You've probably heard it. <laughs> I think so. But I don't think I've said it on a podcast. Um, we went, we, I don't know, like 12 or something. What is it? 92 or... Yeah, 95, I think. Was that late? Well, 94 15, maybe. I forget. 14. Anyways. 13, 14. Zach would have been, you know, 11, 12, probably. Yeah. Um, is this the one that he stayed in the yeah. back of the theater so for? Yeah, he, so he had to stand in the back of the theater, our hometown theater, almost <laughs> the entire movie because of the suspense of it. Uh-huh. And because he didn't leave, and because it was one of the first movies I think we all, that was right when we Zach and I could start going to movies by ourselves. Oh, okay. So we were there by ourselves. Um, I remember the sidetrack, but one time we went to movies, and it was Beauty and the Beast or Star Trek VI. Uh-huh. So we went to Star Trek Six. So I didn't see Beauty and Beast for a long time afterwards because we saw Undiscovered Country, which was awesome. Uh, <laughs> um, see that that's a, that just highlights there is a bit of an age. You know, at that at that point, the age gap between you yeah. and me would have made a bigger difference. Yeah. Because I have a very vivid memory of going to see Beauty and the yeah. Beast, and that there's certain moments. I was at a certain age that I just took in moments, and I just remember how I felt when that played on the screen the first time. Yeah, because so. I didn't see that one. I saw. I think the big one I saw, Aladdin was the big one I went and saw and like watched it honestly like six times in the theater. Oh, really? Yeah, we watched it like nonstop. Wow. Back when, you know, it was like two bucks at, I mean, it's only five <laughs> bucks at our theater right now. Yeah. But, yeah, that's crazy. Um, 
I don't think I've ever gotten so to anyway, see anyway, that. I do wonder whether Jurassic Park, you know, because it was a, a big moment for a lot of people growing You know, it was like the first real yeah. computer and suspense and everything. So maybe there's a lot of memories playing back into it. And I, th- and I think people got the sense that this was going to be better than the Jurassic Park sequels. Yeah. Which I've not seen those, but most consensus is that it's better than So this those, is basically so. the second best Jurassic yeah, Park. Yeah, I, I think that's the, the main thing. But anyway, that's that Jurassic World. I would, I would like to see it at some point, but I think it would be entertaining. Yeah. I mean, it's it's not bad to see once. Yeah. But, all right, next, uh, yeah, we can go to okay. uh, probably one, your favorite movie of the summer. Well, probably. Uh, this would be Inside Out. Oh, man, Inside Out is good. It might possibly be my favorite Pixar movie now. It's hard really? to tell. You know, it moves. Those things move around. Oh so yeah, easily, it's but. It, it's very very hard. I don't I, I don't think it could quite re- replace Wally for me. Wally is, I think, my current favorite yeah. Pixar. But this is right up there with the best, and it was so refreshing. Like I'd been I'd been longing for a Pixar movie like this for a while. Yeah, it was it was great on so many levels. I mean, Riley the character is so complicated. I mean, yeah. so fully developed and such a unique. World I really, perspective I, on the mind. I do not. I do not think it's exaggerating to say, as far as building a world, not necessarily in the mind bending, it's building world. Inside Out does it the mind the same thing Inception did to Dreams. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's taking fair. away the whole mind bending idea of Inception. Sure, sure. I mean, just in fully physicalizing. Mm-hmm. I don't know <laughs> that word, but physicalizing an abstract concept. Yeah, yeah. No, that makes- and it worked. And, you know, and okay, I have a five-year-old and a, and a three-year-old. <laughs> and, you know, the whole idea about losing childhood memories and growing up and stuff, it just, you know, it's that Pixar ability to, you know, kind of sneak in and punch you in the gut. Yeah. Um, but oh, there's just man. so much that works really well. I mean, it's, it's funny. It's absurdly clever. Yeah, you, you got me wanting to go see this again, actually. <laughs> it's, it's been about a month. It's so bright. I mean, just and just the oh, style yeah. is so wonderful. Mm-hmm. And someone pointed out, I didn't even think about it, but the style in the head and the style out of the head are very distinct. Yes, yes, they are. I, I did think about that because it's the colors are much more vivid and brighter, and then everything in the real world is more real, in yeah. a sense. And it's, and, it's inter- and it's one of those movies where I, I read someone made this comment, like, oh, you're right. But the parents aren't like evil or bad or anything. Like sometimes yeah. doing kids' movies, they're just they just don't understand. Right, they're right. Tra- they're really good parents. They really are. Um, <laughs> and the fact that she has both of them is pretty amazing. Yeah. <laughs> um, and there's just a lot of things going right in the movie. I mean, there's one or two like time wise things. Like, wait, that's kind of weird. <laughs> it takes her like all day to get to the bus when she walks. It seems like. Well, and the fact that they they gave a bus ticket to a, a nine-year-old. Or yeah, but you know what? Honestly, at this point, it's like, that movie, I don't, no, you I don't, don't care. Yeah, you'll, you'll cut it slack. You know, that that's it makes sense for what they're for, doing. Yeah. With it. yeah. Um, I actually, I guess I, in psychology, actually, there are brain studies. There are, depending on the culture, whatever, four to six emotions, they say, rule the brain. Yeah, I, I've heard they did they re, the research about the psychology, and it's actually, a lot of it is very accurate. And it, it, it's it, pretty cool. And so, like when she starts singing the the like commercial song about bubblegum or something, and uh, it's just they 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 never get that out of the memory. Just sticks yes, there. So many little, that's fantastic. So many little things like that. Fun fun trivia for you. Um, the two guards that guard the like subconscious area yeah. that they sneak into, they're named Frank and Dave. Yeah, they're played by Dave and Frank, um, namely Frank Oz and Dave Golez. Okay, yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure how they got Muppeteers to, to come and do that. Come and but, do that, but uh, hey, that's pretty cool. <laughs> you know, and the whole scary clown, and I mean, 
it's one of those movies. Sometimes we complain. There's not a lot of movies that are very u- unique to movies. You know, they mm-hmm. they're usually adapted to something else. This is a whole entire universe built for the movie and crams so many ideas in. Yeah. While making it personal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's. I mean, that's not easy to do. I can't imagine trying to write something like this. <laughs> I, I think it took them a while. It's, I, I remember them saying this is one of their harder movies to do, just in terms of breaking the story down. I and, can imagine because it's not. Yeah. It's, it's not. It's not a normal story structure, even for you know a lot. Like, what sort of movie could you really compare this I mean, it's, to? It's kind of one of those exploring movies, like when you're like. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's set up like. We're lost. Let's go into like. Um, and there's no bad guy. That's the like. There's no villain in this thing. No. That's true. I never even actually thought of that. Yeah, but, that's, yeah. that's something. Yeah, one of my sisters pointed out after he saw it, and I, no, I don't think you need a villain for a movie. No, Most cartoons no. have a villain, yeah. especially cartoons. I mean, yeah, th- and there's there's just so many ideas in in this one that is very applicable. Yeah, like <laughs> kids will will understand it, but there's so many. It's so deep on you know so yeah. many things that they won't get that the adults will, and not like in a. Typically, what people say is like, "Oh, there's some you know innuendo or something, yeah. you know," and, and it's not that at all. No, there's it's not innuendo at all. Lots of yeah, lots of the, uh, well, like at the very beginning of the movie, you know, when Riley's a baby, there's one button on the console. Yeah, <laughs> and you and then later it grows, and then after at the end of the movie, it grows again, and Dude, yeah, you get that sense of greater complexity, and you know, yeah. just all kinds of little things like that. So anyway, better, it doesn't give you easy answers either. No, no, it's it's a very bittersweet movie, and you love it because of that. Because yeah, because it's true. Growing <laughs> up is obviously something you want to do, but it's also you know there's that sadness yeah. to it too. So yeah, Inside Out. If you haven't seen it, go go see this thing. Oh, fantastic! Yeah, so glad to have the specs are back. We I mean, need, the, yeah, I, no, I still need to see Monsters University. Which is sometime. which is fun. It's actually it's better than I thought it would be. I'm, I'm a little leery of sequels, and it was quite enjoyable and did a different angle and stuff. Like the ending was not what I thought it was going to be. Oh, okay. um, I don't know if you, it's quite Monsters Inc. Just because that was so unique at the time, and you got oh, sure. and stuff. But it was it was it was a pretty good entry. Cool. Theo wants to go to Good Dinosaur for his birthday. Oh, does right he? Around there. Oh, fun. I think you'll be old enough for it. Look, look in the. I'll have to check as it gets closer. But sure, sure. Yeah. All right. Well, we need to get. We're running yeah, we're, long. Yeah, we're going. So, yeah, we're running very long. So I'm, I'm going to get into this last movie, and that is uh, Mission Impossible: Rogue Nation. Which I wanted to see. Wait, and you still I saw s- Fantastic Four instead. <laughs> you still should, just yeah. because it's not playing in Kennebunk. You can yeah. still go to Fort Wayne to see it. I'm sure. Yeah. Well, it's hard to get out there, but yeah. Yeah, but um, really good movie. Um, I think uh, Ghost Protocol still kind of edges over it a bit, but. Uh, Really fun stuff. I saw someone, some website called it sort of the, uh, the I compiled a lot of the greatest hits of Mission Impossible because it actually has a lot of, there's some really great suspense and wondering who's who and suspense in terms of who can you trust, which I, I think you could pull from the first Mission Impossible. Yeah. There's a motorcycle chase, which, the second. which makes you think of the second. I don't know what you would pull from the third exactly. Although... I will say there's um, it, it's fun in this one. They build on continuity. Like Mission Impossible movies don't tend to have a lot of continuity, no. but they reference some of the past movies in this one, which is which is fun. Nice. And of course, some nice set pieces like the Ghost Protocol. Yeah, I mean Mission Impossible always has some good ones, but Ghost Protocol had, had some great ones. Had some great ones. My favorite here, I think there's a there's a scene at an opera house that involves multiple assassins. 
and um, there's not a whole lot of dialogue in it. It's, it feels very Hitchcockian in the way it plays out and just in showing the audience things and watching Ethan, Tom Cruise, follow people trying to figure out what's going on and all this stuff. It's just, it's a great sequence. So, um, and yeah, there's, I'll, I'll go see it. Yes, yes, you'll like it. You'll, you'll enjoy it a lot. Oh, I'm sure I will. Yeah, yeah, very, very fun, very Mission Impossible-y. Did you see, I don't know if they talked about this in the world and everything in it, but they did a they did an article in the magazine about how Ethan Hunt has sort of become the American Bond. Oh no! In some ways, but well, that makes sense. It's it's an interesting article. It just highlights the differences between Bond and and uh, Ethan Hunt. Yeah, and it, it makes some interesting observations. But yeah, definitely go check it out if you haven't. All right. So I guess we should wrap this up now that we're way over. Yes. Yes, we should. All right. Contact info, Tim. All right. You can uh, email us at Dural Trains of Thought at gmail.com uh, actually our, no email that's not right at all just derailtrain at gmail.com yes yes and then our website derailtrainsofthought.blogspot.com yes and then subscribe to us on iTunes and Stitcher and stuff and also YouTube, join us yep. for uh, Weekly Hijack that's right uh, probably we may have to put Lost on Hold here as we get into Doctor Who and Once Upon a Time the TV season comes back upon us but uh, if those are shows that interest you definitely check it out or even if they don't you can sit here i <laughs> have interesting discussions at least with once upon time <laughs> yeah <laughs> definitely all right Nick, so my soundtrack your soundtrack what is all it? right it is called Rescued, and i picked it because um it's a remix from Donkey kong country 2 i believe the the music from that game is composed by david wise wise Mm-hmm. Um, and this remix is by David Wise Ooh. and two other game composers that he got together to make a remix with. Cool. Um, so I thought well, then we were talking about who owns the story and stuff. And like, so he he remixed his own stuff, and awesome. that's always kind of cool. Yeah. So cool uh, enjoy to see artists supporting OC remakes. Yeah, there's a way. number of them on there that have. Mm-hmm. So enjoy uh, Rescued, and we bring it going here. I, there's some sort of a guy in a robe and stuff walking around now and yeah he seems very serious yeah we'll see what goes on well here. you got you got your uh, breather main because we, we got to swim out of here yeah okay yeah we let's uh, get going I, I don't think they're gonna lend us a, a thingy no <laughs> whatever the, one of those things they called yeah yeah so. all right sounds good all right we'll go to feed feed that sounds good i hear oh. it's very beautiful this yeah. time of year sounds good okay yeah. we'll see you later then yep bye <laughs> this is tim no this is nick <laughs> bye i was just trying to get out of here <laughs>